0: Crazy world.
1: Exocast ExoCast. <laughs> Exocast
0: Exocast Exocast
1: Exocast Exocast Exocast
2: Exocast Exocast Hello everyone and welcome to the foremost podcast for all your exoplanetary needs news views and updates coming to you not live from the Orion arm of the Milky Way galaxy this is Exocast As always we've tried to put together an interesting show for you this month Uh, I will be talking about using isotopes to study the age of the Earth and how this can inform our understanding of the formation of small rocky planets. Hugh will be chatting with our special guest, Dr. Raphael Hayward from the Center for Astronomy at Harvard, and Hannah returns to the news desk to cover the month's happenings in exoplanet science, so stay tuned. But before all that, let's meet the gang. Uh, I'm Andrew Rushby. I'm a postdoc at the University of California at Irvine, where I study the climates of small
1: worlds in the galaxy. I'm Hugh Osborne and I'm a postdoc at the Laboratoire of Astrophysique in Marseille where I study transiting exoplanets, especially with the Plato satellite.
0: And I'm Hannah Wakeford and I study the atmospheres of transiting exoplanets using the Hubble Space Telescope from the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore.
2: Great. Well, thanks, gang. It's uh, good to get the formalities out the way. Uh, It's (laughs) nearly the end of April 2019. Where is the time gone? Um, It's been a quiet month for me. Um, Any highlights for you,
1: Hugh? What have you been up to? I spent some time in Austria, which is cool. I'm gradually touring my way around ESA member states, because every three, no, every six months, there's a different Plato meeting in a a new country. So this time it was Austria's turn. not Vienna, there's there's more to, us, to Austria than Vienna, we were in Gr- Graz, which was like the sec- second city, although I'd not really heard of it before, but it was a beautiful little place.
0: Fantastic. Not really heard of something being called the second city and being happy with it.
1: True. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's better than Birmingham, I'll tell you that.
0: <laughs> Is that our second city, really? I would have gone with Manchester. Well, by
2: population, I think, yeah. My God. Okay, we apologise to the people of Birmingham here, I should say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well,
2: what we... about you Hannah how's Hello. your month <laughs> been when you're not insulting you know a million people who live in Birmingham
0: that wasn't me that was Hugh I'd like to clarify that was me, yeah. um, I, I don't want you to keep putting those things on me Andrew uh, I was actually back in the Hannah. UK I, w- I was back in the UK for the UK exoplanet meeting which happens every year um, at the beginning of spring and it was uh, hosted at Imperial this year it was a really great meeting it's three days of UK exoplanet scientists coming together and talking about all the different types of topics it was really focused on the first day around planet formation there seems to be a really big group of people doing planet formation studies from either simulations or looking at population statistics and stuff uh and then we got we got one day we got well it wasn't even one day we got like three quarters of a day maybe two thirds on the characterization of atmospheres and trying to understand what the these planets are actually like so uh Eh, It changes every year between what topics they cover, Um, but the UK has got a broad range of different things that they do in Exoplanet, so it was good to go back and and see everyone and see Rafi as well, uh, who was our guest today, so we'll chat about that a bit later, I think.
2: Well, yeah, I guess people probably don't want to hear from the the three of us, they're they're used to hearing from us, so as I've always said, my favourite segment is the guest segment, so without further ado, I'm going to let Hugh introduce our special
1: guest for this month. Yeah, so as you heard, this month we have... Dr. Raphael, or Raffi Hayward, and she's currently a Sagan Fellow at the Centre for Astronomy at Harvard, as, as Andrew mentioned at the intro. Uh, although, like us, she, she kind of did the same PhD in the UK, and then across, well, like us, like you two, <laughs> and then flew across the, uh, the Atlantic to, to work in the US. So that's kind of um, how we know each other anyway. But, but she's a specialist in detecting small planets and kind of studying stellar activity using radial velocity. So welcome, Raffi.
3: Thanks. Very honoured to be on your podcast. <laughs> Hi, everyone. <Ooh. laughs>
1: so I thought you could maybe give us a little general background about radial velocities and how, what they are and how we can use them to find planets.
3: Okay. Yeah, sure. So uh, right now, as uh, many of you probably know, we have the test mission that is finding exoplanets in our solar neighbourhood uh, by looking for uh, basically transits. So the as the planets pass in front of their stars they have a drop in light and so you can make an initial detection and from that you can say okay that's probably a planet but really what you want from there on is to actually be able to confirm that detection through an independent uh, observational technique and so this is really where uh, the radial velocity technique comes in so basically Uh, For every planet going around a star, uh, because of Newton's laws of gravity, you're going to be, um, the the planet goes around the star uh, because of the star's gravity it's being pulled in, but at the same time the planet is exerting a force on the star. And it's a much smaller force because it's proportional to the mass of the planet, which is much less than the mass of the star. But basically you get a wobble in the stellar, so the star wobbles. And so then you get a, a Doppler wobble in, in the light of the star. Uh, it's basically the same thing as when you have a, an ambulance driving by and it's, um, the, the pitch of the siren uh, is com- becomes very high pitched when the ambulance comes towards you and then as it goes away uh, the pitch goes lower and lower. So basically we're looking for that, that sort of changing pitch of the light. So the light becomes blue shifted as the star comes towards you and it goes redshift as, as it goes away. So uh, that we can measure using spectrographs that basically split the light in all the different wavelengths and colors. And we're looking for something. If you're looking at an Earth-like planet, so one Earth mass in a one-year orbit around a star that is like the sun, one solar mass, you're looking for uh, basically the, a, a turtle crawling along. That's the kind of speeds you're looking at. But the instruments, they're able to detect that. So that's what we're doing. That's about 10 centimetres per second. So if you can detect that wobble, and and in in planets that Tess is finding, they're much bigger planets and they're much closer in. So you're talking maybe five Earth masses for a super Earth uh, in a orbit of a few days, so maybe, say, a couple of weeks, uh, you're going to have an amplitude of one, two, three metres per second. So that's... uh, So
1: is that the limit now, the one metre per second? So what's the kind of... most sensitive detection we've had so far in in velocities.
3: That's a great question. So in terms of instrumental precision, uh, the most precise spectrographs, basically ESPRESSO and the VLT, uh, that's just getting going now uh, but we've got HARPS-NORTH and HARPS, uh, which they're, they're about half a meter per second. So that's the instrumental precision. Now the thing that I work on and that many of us work on and that's the Currently, the real obstacle uh, is uh, actually the fact that we're looking at light that comes from the stars, and the stars are not homogeneous light bulbs. They change. Yeah. So stars are like these big balls of plasma and hot gas, and on top of it, there's magnetic fields, and and so you can imagine that basically all those those flows of of of, of fluid on the surface of the star, they're producing velocity shifts as well. Basically, they're the light uh, becomes Doppler shifted and ret- red shifted as you have, uh, for example, big cells on the surface of the star that are moving. Uh, and that creates noise that's on the order of one meter per second, roughly. Even in the stars that we think are the least active, we tend to call it So can, can So um,
1: mm-hmm. Can this effects kind of mimic exactly the, the signal of a planet?
3: Uh, pretty much. I mean, stars rotate, and uh, the so the the signal of a planet, uh, the planet goes around in a periodic, coherent uh, orbit, and so the Doppler shift that you get is a, is basically a sine curve. I mean, it can be a Keplerian if it has some eccentricity, but it's basically a periodic, coherent uh, signal. And if the 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 stars rotate, and so Our Sun has a rotation period of about 27 days, let's call it a month. Uh, And if you have a feature, a magnetic feature, such as a spot or a group of faculae on the surface, they will produce uh, a Doppler shift that is modulated by the rotation of the star. So on a Sun-like star, it would be about a month. Uh, And you also get signals at the harmonics. So you would get a signal at about two weeks, half the rotation period. And that's where I've just mentioned that the test planets, they're going to have orbits of about a week or two weeks. And so you could Mm. plausibly end up with a signal that um, is periodic over a couple of weeks. And the thing is that, okay, the signal will evolve because you're looking at magnetic features on the stellar surface and these evolve over several weeks. But if you're only observing your target for a few weeks, then maybe within that time of observation, your signal coming from the star will look coherent. So that's where it can really masquerade as a planet.
0: So is it really important then that we know the rotation periods of the stars we're looking at? And how do we work that out?
3: Yeah, that's super important, knowing the rotation period. Uh, And so one good way to work it out is to use the photometry from, so the, the data from TESS itself. Um, in the Kepler mission, which was looking at stars for, um, 90 days plus, uh, you could really pick out the rotation period because the, the light is modulated by the rotation as you've got dark features such as star spots, um, on the stellar disk, then you can pick out, um, it's, it will be a quasi periodic, uh, signal, but you will pick out the periodicity usually, uh, but you might not always pick it out very precisely, so you might, say oh okay this star it looks like there's a periodicity of about 27 days but it could also be 32 days really so we, we have pretty large error bars of several days I would say and another thing with tests is that most of the stars will be looked at for only 27 days so 27 days at a time so if you're looking for a Sun-like star a planet around Sun-like star then you're um probably not going to be able to get as good a rotation period determination as you would like to. Um, so you're gonna to have to account for that uncertainty basically, right. in your final mass determination.
1: I guess um, for planets that we find with transits, then we know what the period is through the, the transiting you know, the light curve. And we can also work out the rotation, as you're saying. Um, so we can be pretty certain that the signal, well, we know what signal to look for in the radial velocities. But when it comes to the hundreds of planets that are detected in only radial velocities, how do we know that they are actually planets and not rotation signals? Is there some like number of planets that are likely to be potentially <laughs> not actually real?
3: Oh, you're getting to a touchy subject here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <Diplomatically>. <laughs> well, the Hugh loves that...
0: to kill planets. And which ones? <laughs> <laughs> a yeah, whole segment
2: about too. this multiple segments <laughs> about killing planets <laughs> so.
3: yeah yeah so when you're getting to to super apps so to small planets that are going to have small doppler uh, radio velocity amplitude yes absolutely i think you need and that's why i was saying you know you need an independent confirmation technique uh, independent observation uh, in order to say okay this is definitely a planet it's not just some random signal that's in the radial velocities that could be coming from uh, either the, the stellar surface or even the way we observe the star. So uh, the sampling of the observations creates a ton of peaks that can look very periodic and very very much like planets. Uh, and actually, Alpha Bb um, that was a planet candidate that was discovered through just radial velocity follow-up, so no transits. And several years later, uh, it was uh, proven, it was shown to be quite likely to, to be caused by just the sampling of the observations. So that's work that Vinesh Rashball did at Oxford during his PhD. Uh, but yeah, I think the, the thing is we're kind of tricked because historically, the first planets that we found through radio velocities, they were those hot Jupiters. And so they were massive and they had radio velocity amplitudes of several hundred meters per second. So when you saw that, you know, sine curve in your radial velocity data, there was no doubt that it was going to be a planet, or maybe mm. even a small star. That's where you had to be sure that it was a planet. You know, it's like, oh, is it is it small enough to be a planet? Uh, but now that we're going down to those super-Earths that are just a few Earth masses and just one, two, three meters per second, you're really having to confirm that. I don't think we can say that's definitely a planet.
0: And so far, we've been talking about Sun-like stars, what what do other stars do to the radio velocities?
3: So another group of stars that is very um, trendy right now with radio velocity uh, searches and follow up from transit uh, searches are m-dwarfs. And so they're basically stars that are smaller than the Sun. And these are good targets to look at because if you're looking for an Earth-like planet, so we call it the fast track to finding Earth-like planets, because the same one Earth-mass planet in the habitable zone will actually have a much bigger radial velocity amplitude if it's around an m-dwarf, because if the star is 10 times less massive than the Sun, then the Doppler amplitude from the same planet will be 10 times bigger. And so, And, and the additional thing is that because these stars are smaller, they're cooler, and so the, the habitable zone where you can get water in liquid state is gonna be a lot closer in to the star. So for an, a mid-type M dwarf, uh, it's gonna be maybe, the habitable zone will be in um, a couple of weeks, a few weeks orbit, and so you, you don't have to wait for a whole year to see one whole orbit. So M dwarfs, the fast track to finding life well, to finding potentially habitable planets, like Earth.
2: Um, so. You, you, I guess that's a problem. Oh, sorry, sorry. He I, put just, his I hand just up and everything. here. I did. I was very polite. Sorry, I, was very I polite can't polite see him. About it. Um, I was just say in your intro, Raffi, you mentioned a little bit about magnetic processes. Is that something that you're studying at the moment? The interactions between the star and the planet, and how this might obscure those potential signals.
3: Oh, so so I think you're you're talking about two things here. I mean, I work on how. Uh, These magnetic processes, so for example, you have the dark star spots on the sun. We have sunspots. You may have seen them with, you know, looking at an eclipse and with your uh, solar glasses, special glasses, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You can see the dark patches, and they're caused by very strong magnetic fields Mm. that basically inhibit the convection that's happening on the surface of the sun. And so we get those in other stars, and they produce Doppler shifts that, Uh, basically um, can be confused for Doppler shifts from planets. So I'm looking at how magnetic activity impacts the detection of planets. Ah, I see. Um, So
2: yeah, I guess coming from planetary science things, whenever I hear magnetic processes, I'm like, oh, well, this has to be how the stars interacting with the planet's magnetic field, of course. It's my bias.
3: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, you can also look at how the, the... I mean, at some point, the next step is going to be to understand whether these planets are habitable, and especially around those M-dwarfs. You know, they have There, One thing that I didn't mention is that M-dwarfs are super active, so they have a lot of magnetic activity. And because your habitable, you know, inverted commas, habitable Thank planets you. are going to be so much closer to their stars, then they're going to be much more vulnerable to anything magnetic that happens on the star. And that's, that's a whole area um, that I... I People are working on it already, but I suspect it's going to become very important in the next uh, couple of decades, yeah.
1: So I thought we change tack a bit and we talk about a project you're involved with at the moment, which is basically trying to find signals of planets around our nearest star, which is the sun. So <laughs> what's
3: that? <laughs> yeah, uh, so I'm currently involved in a project. We built a, a, a solar telescope, so it's a small telescope uh, that can look directly at the sun and that we're plugging into uh, the one of uh, the world's most active exoplanet hunters, uh, the Harps-North spectrograph. And so we're getting observations in radial velocity, so radio velocity observations of the Sun, as if it were a distant point-like star, as if it were any other star. And the reason we're doing this is that we're getting all the same types of instrument, instrumental issues, uh, you know, sort of instrumental profile. They're not all issues. Uh, and, and and so we're able to get those radio velocities just as we would see them for another star. But at the same time, we have ground truth because we have all these other missions of the sun. And we know so much about the sun. So for example, the Solar Dynamics Observatory has these amazing images every day, every 30 seconds, in lots of different filters uh, of the sun at high spatial resolution. So you can see the granulation, you can see those sunspots, you can see all the features on the surface of the sun, and you can use that to create models, and you can test those models against the radial velocity observations of the sun observed with Hartz-North. And one of the things that I like to say about this data set is that So, well, the data set has to be, we have to do some corrections because understandably, we're not looking at a star, we're looking at the sun and the sun is within our own solar system. So the earth, we're going around the sun and there are lots of other planets going around the sun as well. So we're using uh, ephemeris data from JPL, which are really precise uh, to basically subtract the velocities induced by the fact that so we're, we're able to place the sun in its own rest frame, so as a distant point like star, and we're able to subtract off all the planets in the solar system. So actually the sun, once we have that data set, is the only data set for which we can be sure that there are no planets lurking around. So <laughs> that's, that's pretty useful because those pesky planets, they... They create a lot of noise when you're looking at magnetic processes.
1: <laughs> Which planets do you detect? I guess you see Jupiter strongly, right? And yeah. do you see Venus in the data set?
3: So you see Jupiter; it's like a massive sine curve. Then you take that off; you see another big sine curve from Saturn, and then um, that's about it. You don't see. We've tried to we've tried to re-inject Venus, uh, so it's a an amplitude of about a meter per second. Um, And it has an orbital period that's a bit shorter than the earth. So it should be easier, but we don't find Mm. it. And we've, um, you know, we've thrown our like Gaussian process regression our all the, all the models, models and techniques that we know of right now that, you know, we, we've thrown all that at the data set. We can't find Venus. So we're not, if if um, we can't
1: find Venus with, um, what 400 data points a day for 20 years. Yeah. Do we have any chance of finding Venus in X? Are we sure it's systems? even there? <laughs> has anyone seen <laughs> Venus recently? <laughs>
3: so, well, I mean, maybe we just need more data. Uh, I should have mentioned that the solar telescope at HapsNorth has been on since July 2015. So we have about oh, okay. getting on to four years of data. So maybe we just need more data. But at the same time, yeah, we're observing every five minutes from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. So we have over 20,000 observations now, probably getting on to Mm. Uh, 30,000. And also, the sun is getting less active now. So we were in the peak of its magnetic activity cycles of 11 years. The peak was in about 2012, 2015. And now we're, and you can see it in the data, the sun is getting less active. And mm. we're still struggling. So, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I really think that you're going to need to have an independent detection technique. And so I think that the having transits at the same time is really going to help you because then you can really pin down um, the, the ephemeris. So you can say, okay, we know that the signal should have this phase and this periodicity. And actually, I am not sure now that you mention it, Uh, whether we've actually pretended that Venus was transiting. So did we do a blind search or did we say, okay, we know Venus has this period and we know it has this phase. Uh, And that would be very interesting because that would, Mm. that might change the answer actually. I'm going to ask this afternoon. Nice.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Doing some live science here on Exocast.
1: Is, um, is the reason we don't find it also because of the precision of harps? Like we, you mentioned espresso. Would moving to this next generation of, of uh, radial velocity machines be able to find these planets more easily?
3: Yeah, so that's definitely going to help. Uh, the reason that very good instrumentation precision helps is that at least when there's a signal or a drift or... Something, um, if, you, if you have a very good handle on your instrument, then you can at least say, we know it's not the instrument, so it must be stellar activity. Whereas if you're stuck at about a meter per second or so, even half a meter per second, absolutely, uh, you're definitely still you know, like in doubt as to whether it's, is it, is it the magnetic activity or is it something about the instrument? So and, and that's one thing about uh, this experiment looking at the sun is that we're learning a lot about the instrument itself. So David Phillips here at uh, the Center for Astrophysics at Harvard and, and his team and others are, are definitely learning a lot about the instrument.
0: Right. So let's end on a positive. Uh, what do you see <laughs> for radial velocities and our search for, for this other Earth that you talked about in the next few decades?
3: Ah, Give some positives. Give us some positives. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think things are are looking up. I think that with Tess, we're going to find some great planet candidates um, that are going to be looking very exciting. And I think the radial velocity uh, method—it's going to give us the masses of these planets, and that's super important to characterise their atmospheres. And so, even if we don't find the one Earth mass planet in a one-year orbit around a Sun-like star, I think the radial velocity method is going to give us a lot of very uh, fundamental science to to go on to characterize planets that yeah one day will might look a little bit like the earth in in terms of their atmospheric properties and all that so there's definitely uh, a well a big future and also one of the problems that we've been running up against I mentioned that the Sampling of the observations can create signals that look like planets. And I think we're really nailing this now because we're uh, all teaming up together. So there are loads of spectrograph teams and loads of people who have a little bit of time on each instrument. And now we're really communicating, we're talking with each other, we're collaborating. And that is uh, making, that's enabling us to observe at a much better cadence. Uh, with much better sampling. So we're killing those fake planets right there. And we're enabling the science to be done for um, to get masses of, of really exciting planets. So yeah, awesome. it's looking up. Was that positive enough? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great to hear. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Rafi. It was great to have you on and talking about radial velocities, because we kind of... We kind of neglect RVs in this podcast, unfortunately. As a transit person, I tend to gloss over them. So it's nice to have a perspective from someone who works in that field.
3: You're very welcome. I can recommend more people if you want. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we'll be glad to have them. We're gradually making our way around the entire Exoplanet community. So. Yeah.
3: Exactly.
1: <laughs> Everyone needs to be been on the show at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Everyone who's anyone, yeah. Um, great, but we'll hear from you later when we... We hear which planets you're going to adopt but yeah for now thanks very much Rafi. Yeah, thanks rafi
0: thank you thank you
1: next up andrew's going to t- tell us a little bit about how isotopes can be used to tell us how old the earth is so um yeah go ahead <laughs> Thanks for that, that incredibly <laughs> underwhelming
2: introduction as <is> always here. <laughs> no, I joke. Um, for this month's topic segment, I'd like to return, you know, from, from space, from exoplanets to the Earth. And if I go backwards in time uh, to the formation of our solar system to develop, you know, a picture of what things might have been like at this earliest time in our planet's history. Now I'm able to do this thanks to the hard work of lots of other people before me and I can, you know, paint this picture by exploring the role of radiogenic isotopes and geochronology in developing our theories about how this planet and maybe other planets might be put together. So in the beginning, as they say, there was a Big Bang that precipitated the still ongoing expansion of the universe and from which, after a few million years, uh, were born the the first stars. These were very hot, very massive, um, and you know they lived short, quite violent lives. At the end of which they went uh, supernova and you know, fertilized, if you will, the interstellar medium with lots of heavy heli- heavy elements, which is uh, everything heavier than hydrogen and helium. If you're not an astro person. Um, and this uh, therefore allowed the formation of smaller, cooler, longer-lived stars, uh, and eventually planets, too. And it's from you know those kind of stellar remnants that our sun was forged, uh, and this planet, and later on, all life and everything else, including us, of course, uh, a grand 4.5 billion years ago, um, with some some errors on that, which I'm going to discuss. So despite the vast tracts of time that have passed since that, that period, the Hadean, uh, as it's known in geological terms, um, uh, it's almost incomprehensible on human timescales that you know, we, could, we could be able to build up a picture based on uh, you know, geochemical evidence from 4.5 billion years ago. But we're actually very confident about this date um, because we can use uh, physics, fundamental physics, uh, specifically radioisotope studies. Um, so a radionuclide or a radioisotope is um, an atom that has excess nuclear energy. It's uh, it's unstable, it undergoes radioactive decay. And particularly an isotope is a um, a form or a a species, if you will, of the same element that has a different number of neutrons. Same number of protons, different number of neutrons, if I remember correctly. Um, And this gives it a slightly different atomic mass and different physical properties. Sometimes isotopes are unstable, sometimes they're stable. so, you know, there's a, a number of different mechanisms of this decay, which I'm not going to go into here. But the original product is known as the parent material and the, and the, uh, and the decay product is known as the daughter uh, material. So if we know the rate of decay uh, at which, you know, the one isotope decays into the other, um, this is measured by a metric known as the half-life, which uh, is defined as the amount of time it takes for the level of radioactivity in that sample to decline by 50% so if we know what the half-life of that sample is and how much material was in the original sample we can then measure the ratio of the parent and daughter isotopes to allow us to date actually very precisely the time at which that decay chain began to happen, Uh, and this is only really possible if that sample is isolated uh, from, say, you know, uh, the the atmosphere or from being processed uh, in the interior of the planet. So it's important to keep it isolated. But then this chronometer or this way of measuring time can provide a super accurate record uh, of the age of whatever material is encasing the sample. So there are loads of, um, of isotopes out there, loads of chronometers. Uh, some are long-lived, some are not the order of the, the age of the universe. Some are much more short-lived, like picoseconds. Um, but the one that perhaps may, most people are familiar with, if they don't study this kind of, uh, this kind of work uh, you know, in, the, in their research, uh, is radiocarbon dating. So this technique measures the ratio of the short-lived isotope um, carbon-14 to the stable carbon-13. Now, in particular, this is very useful for dating uh, organic material, uh, you know, things like um, human remains, animal remains, plant remains, because uh, of the fact that organisms take up carbon when they're alive and they're respiring. They, they take up carbon from their environment and a small proportion of that carbon is the radioactive carbon-14. Um, so if we so when that organism then dies and it stops taking up carbon it stops respiring that decay chain of the 14 to 13 begins and if we can measure the ratio in that sample then we can tell how old it is um, and um we can assume that the time that it stopped taking up carbon 14 is probably the same time it stopped respiring probably the same time it died so we can get a really accurate picture of of, of when exactly that was now when we're talking of timescales on order of a billion years having um Uh, a short-lived radioisotope like uh, carbon-14, which I think is on the order of uh, 5,700 years or something, Um, we need something a little bit longer. We need a a more long-lived isotope. And uh, we can give uh, thanks to the anthropic principle here because the universe has provided us with just such a chronometer. And this is the uh, uranium lead isotopic decay chain, which is really cool. Um, so uranium, I'm sure you've heard of, but it has several isotopes and several of those are unstable. Uh, and specifically U238 and 235 are two of those uh, which are used in the stating method. Uh, now U238 and U235 decay to lead 206 and lead 207 after uh, 4.4 and 0.7 billion years respectively. So much more longer lived than the, the, the carbon um, so any uh, any um, uranium-238 that was locked up, at, say, in a rock at the beginning of the formation of this planet will have undergone one half-life uh, in that period, uh, which would mean that it would have uh, changed the ratio of the uranium to lead in that sample uh, to now 50% or one-to-one. However, the uranium-235, which has a a, a much shorter... A half-life on order of about 700 million years um, would have already gone through six or uh, you know, six and a half half-life something like that so there might only be one percent of that material left so we can use that ratio um, to then especially if we have both of them if we have both you U238 and 235, we can use the ratio of both of those to determine actually quite accurately, on the order of uh, an error of maybe 20 million years on a 2.5 billion year old sample, um, the age of whatever that material is. And this, my friends, is how we dated the Earth. Uh, Specifically, we used that uh, that uranium lead decay uh, chain from uh, the coolest sample uh, in the world, the coolest mineral. Uh, I don't care what Twitter polls say, this is zircon. Um, So zircon is straight up my favorite mineral. Um, many students in my recent lectures will probably know this. It's um, it's it's hard, it's resilient, uh, it's common, and without it, we might not know nearly as much as we do about the earliest you know, period in our planet's history, and then maybe not even that much about planet formation at all, I'm going to go and say. Um, so the oldest and most famous of all the zircons uh, was discovered from a sheep farm uh, in Western Australia, rather you know, unceremonial discovery uh, around about the turn of the millennium, and was dated using this uranium-lead um, technique to 4.404 billion years old. So I'm just going to let that sit there and accept the incredible fact that you know an object of this age still exists on this planet. Uh, this this wonderful on little... the surface
0: in a sheep yes. farm.
2: on the surface in a sheep farm. Well, actually, it was found how do we in... know
0: that it didn't get? Uh, it's it's not a meteorite or something
2: fantastic question it was actually found in a much younger sedimentary material so it's, it's what's known as a detrital grain um and it was um it's on the order of i think maybe 300 microns it's a tiny tiny mineral oh, found in a much tiny. younger yes it's very tiny um oh. and found in a <laughs> suddenly suddenly that uh, made hannah's face light up slightly uh, the thought of it being very small um
0: it makes more yes. sense now it's more logical yes. it was yes, annoying yeah. me that it was a lump of rock sitting on the surface but it's more logical now that's way better
1: Z- zircon isn't uranium right so it, it, but- it, it includes inside it uranium atoms? Yes. So right?
2: uh, the way that the crystal um, structure of the zircon is set up, it basically, um, uranium is quite compatible with, with that structure. It fits in there quite well. Right. However, lead doesn't. Lead, it re- strongly rejects lead. So during the formation of that zircon mineral, if we find um, you know any uranium that's locked up in that... Um, in that uh, crystal structure is then going to decay to lead, that lead that we find in there is going to be a daughter product of that original decay, because if it was being formed, the lead would have been okay. rejected. So that's the great thing about, um, about that particular uh, you know, dating mechanism is that zircon has that unique property in that it loves uranium but hates lead, and uranium does eventually, you know, decays to lead. Um, so there's a very small material found in actually a younger sedimentary material, which just shows how, like, amazing zircons are surviving being processed and metamorphosed and i mean i mean the rock was still 3.7 billion years old but not as old as the zircon was um so it's just incredible that this this wonderful little 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 grain still exists and by its very uh, by its very nature it also put Definitively, a limit on the earliest possible time that the continents were in place and, and cooled, because it was originally formed in uh, an igneous rock, a Cretaceous igneous rock. Um, even though I said it was recovered from younger sedimentary material, so if we can if we can determine the age of that that zircon, we can say that this is the earliest point anyway that we know of at which uh, there was definitely something like a continental crust on the surface, um, which is really cool. But wait, there's more. Uh, if we take a gander, at actually what is my favorite decay chain, not my favorite mineral, uh, this is the hafnium tungsten chronometer, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with if you're, if you're outside of the earth sciences. Um, so we can use hafnium tungsten to further refine how the earth was actually being put together the fundamental times at which it was being differentiated. Uh, and the reason for this is that hafnium 182 decays into tungsten 182 with a half-life of about 9 million years, so it's quite a short-lived one. Um, and Hafnium and tungsten are both hard as nails, they're refractory, which means they can survive that accretionary heat quite well, um, but the difference between them is is that um, uh, hafnium is lithophile, which means it, it likes being in rocks, it likes being uh, dissolved in silicate materials, whereas tungsten is siderophile, which means it prefers iron. So when the planet was being formed and things were being differentiated, i.e. The, the silicate mantle was being formed and the much more dense iron was being drawn into the core of the planet, any, uh, any tungsten that was around would have been taken into the core at the time. So we can assume that any time we see tungsten in a silicate rock uh, from that time is that this was a decay product. It was the daughter product of the original hafnium, which is really cool. So it gives us actually quite a, an interesting window into that, that time when the planet was being differentiated, even before the continents were in place. And we don't even just need to use the earth for these samples because the earth is is a difficult place to collect really old rocks. Uh, It's been processed a lot, there's a lot of metamorphism, there's a lot of erosion, there's volcanoes. uh, meteorites, um, but we can actually look to those meteorites before they hit the planet. Uh, ideally, collecting them in space uh, would be ideal. But uh, we could even look to meteoritic samples. We could look to moon samples because they don't have that same problem with melting, with being processed and tectonics, and um, and being in the cold vacuum of space allows that material to be preserved as a time capsule, basically, to the formation of the solar system, because uh, it would be made out of the same stuff. Um, so if if we look at uh, you know multiple isotopic investigations from materials from from meteorites, we can get a, 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 an idea about the the time that twenty million year chaotic window between uh, when the planet and the when the when the star had basically just finished being born, when it was entering the main sequence, and when the, the um, uh, just before the Earth cooled and was accreted. So we can get a really interesting um, window into that time. Um, it you know it gives us this unparalleled view that that early geologists would have just I don't know would have would have considered it to be magic I guess, um, but I think to put this in context I think it ind- indirectly allows us to understand and maybe put constraints on the formation of other planets as well so other rocky planets um, so we have dozens of now of observed examples of protoplanetary disks we can actually see these with Elmer and Hubble um, you know there are various sizes various ages we can see the the, the Um, gaps being carved out where planets are forming um, and we can use then those images and geochemical evidence from right here on old Earth to inform our interpretation of of those systems to inform our our theories about how planets are formed. Uh, so while it also confirms how old our planet is, it's old uh, it also gives us an idea about rocky planets might be like when they first form, you know how long it takes for their continents to cool perhaps and what we might expect in terms of differentiation and and accretion. So I just think it's um it's it's a fantastic resource to have, to, to have this uh, opportunity to investigate this very earliest period in the solar system's history.
0: I love how excited you are when you're going through and talking about these. If, if the audience could see your face when you started talking about your favorite, what was it? Hafnium Chain... tungsten. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, it's, it's, it's
2: just it's just so elegant. It's just so neat. You know, they're both incredibly hard. They both survive that accretion. But then one likes to be in the silicate. Mantle one likes to be in the iron core. We couldn't have asked for a better way of trying to measure that that accretion. It is so cool. Um, so My just, I just like teacher
0: in is. in secondary school always. I went to a a Roman Catholic school. He always used to say things like that were evidence of of God existing, and that it was wow. just he had these whole things about tungsten. It's this isn't the only one. He had this whole other thing about tungsten because the way that tungsten itself is is a decay element is just. Got some funky things about it, apparently. Mm. But that's what we used to use in light bulbs. So tungsten, uh, people will mostly be familiar with tungsten as that very hard substance that doesn't melt in your light bulb but gives you that light.
2: I believe it has the highest melting point. Uh, of of any metal, I think anyway um, but yeah you're right and that's why I I did mention the anthropic principle it just seems so coincidental that we have you know that physics is set up in such a way that allows us to investigate this but if people might remember my segment about the anthropic principle which was many many shows ago um, that this coincidence and this bias is sometimes difficult to avoid that it just seems so nicely set up but of course if it wasn't we wouldn't be here to talk about it in the first place but there we go Um, I hope that maybe you know gives a window into how we can use you know even fairly esoteric studies about the earth to inform planet formation anyway.
1: So, so these, um, these isotope ratios, we have to have them in a lab in order to get a measure, right? We, there's no way, I mean, okay, there is, a, I've seen, there is a way to do it with water. We can measure deuterium and we can yes. measure normal water that tells us something in, out in the distant solar system. Exactly. But I'm thinking in terms of exoplanets, there's no way we can find the hafnium well, well, tungsten chain, uh, in terms yeah. of on on a on a distant exoplanet. Right? no i
2: don't think there's any option for an indirect um observing of these uh yeah you do have to be up there and close so we could do it in the solar system let's hope we can get out to you know moon and, and mars uh, maybe and, and start well, collecting
0: isotopes i mean there. they're looking so osiris rex right now is on on its orbit around Bennu, exactly. the asteroid if it's yeah. able to pick up any of the material unfortunately it looks like the material is a bit too big for the high five mm, instrument that they that. were hoping for, but there's there's been two Japanese missions now that have brought back samples from different uh, asteroids in our solar system, Mm. so that information is out there for those types of formation materials, but in terms of looking further beyond, like the isotopes that we use is like different, um, different carbon in bonds with in carbon monoxide in gas clouds so in molecular clouds you look at the difference between the c18o and i think what c13o or, or something and those those different ratios tell you about the makeup and the like the composition temperature and age of that material so the isotopes are just a huge and really useful way of trying to understand how these materials are forming and how old they are
2: Absolutely. There's, there's, there's multiple applications for this too, you know, studying recent climate change, for example, you know, you can look at oxygen isotopes in, in seawater even, and, 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 and ice cores to determine, you know, what, what paleoclimate temperatures may have been. So, you know, the isotope, the isotope resource is incredibly rich, but it does require a little bit more direct sampling. Uh, what we can do with the isotopic, atmospheric isotopes, I, I don't know yet, but uh, maybe there's some exciting stuff that can be done there. I, I just think maybe you don't necessarily have to always observe a process to have it inform your ideas about, you know, distant objects like exoplanets, is my argument on this.
1: Your your topic may be going, maybe really wants to go and get a sample from one object in particular, and that's Umuamua, one, 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 right? How, how cool would it be to have an age for a rock that comes from a different solar Absolutely. system? Absolutely.
2: That's a fantastic point, Hugh. Uh, not just the age of the
1: sample, but if there's any
2: difference in the isotopic ratios of that material that can also tell us about you know different formation scenarios around you know maybe another star but yeah if we could get a sample from or more and or more that would be that would be fantastic and also probably prove that it's not space spaceship once and for all <laughs> yeah. all that it is that would work as well
1: i mean i i saw a recent paper which suggested maybe there's some captured extraterrestrial asteroids in our solar system so i mean those would be ripe for for mass spectrometry as well to
2: try and get those isotopes. Yeah, well, potentially if we see that difference, that could be, um, you know, a yeah. symptom of the fact that they are from another uh, solar system, perhaps, and can allow us to differentiate between them. Possibly, uh, we might just think that, you know, even the different asteroids uh, families in our solar system have different geophysical properties, geochemical properties. So it can be difficult to, you, well, it can actually be quite easy to tell which population a sample came from, but it can be difficult to determine why there are differences between said samples or pol- Populations, um, and if we found an extra, uh, you know, an extra solar sample, that would only confuse things even more, I should imagine. But uh, maybe enough isotope studies and uh, the history of this planet. Let's go to uh, current news and maybe future stuff as well, uh, with Hannah on the news
0: desk. Yeah, so we've had a interesting month as always uh, with papers from the exoplanet community. I'll just give you a, a- few of the planets that have been discovered that I managed to find uh, on the archive. NGTS 6, an ultra-hot Jupiter, around a metal-rich star. Of course, we expect the larger, more giant planets to be around more metal-rich stars. So that's possibly not quite surprising. But we're looking at the ultra-hot ones. They're quite interesting in trying to understand the differences between the way that they form ions in their atmospheres. We also have Mascara 4b, and that's a retrograde hot Jupiter around an A-type star. Um, is that our first so A-type planet? It's not the first that's A-type not, planet. Uh, the CELT survey has found multiple A-type planets. Uh, but these these stars are so hot; they're so they they live fast, they die young, and they have a really big effect on their planet. So I, I wonder what that world is actually like. And then uh, Coralie, which is a survey of the southern sky, has found three new massive planets and two low mass brown dwarfs. So that one is uh, a nice, interesting look at some of the more massive planets that you can find out there. And uh, it's pretty cool as
1: well, because we're now at the, the generation where we've had radial velocity spectrographs running for 20 years. So, we're slowly, gradually pushing our way to like these long period gas giant, like um, Jupiter like objects.
0: True, that's so, uh, true. They were at separations of over 5 AU, these planets. So, they're really quite distant from their star and able to make those measurements is, is pretty amazing. And then uh, and finally, uh, a possibly inflated planet around the bright young star, DS Tuck A. I have no idea where that is but it's got a name which means you can probably see it with your eyes uh
1: it's near 47 tuck i guess if it's in Tucana, the is that southern is that the southern
0: constellation that it's, i don't it, know
1: it's a southern mm-hmm. constellation and ds means it's like in the top 200 stars in terms of brightness in that constellation
0: well there we go all right then i think I mean, planetary scientists just don't, we don't know where stars are in the sky. I was going to say, I assumed
2: you guys knew where all the constellations were at all times God, no. and could just Absolutely look up and point to no idea. Them. I
0: can point at Orion
2: Yeah. and I can me. point
0: at the Big Dipper
2: and Polaris uh, is useful to know
0: and Cassiopeia I know Cassiopeia because that tells you where the Milky Way is because you can never see the Milky Way so <laughs> you can always know where it's supposed to be by looking at Cassiopeia but I, I have very limited knowledge of the night sky unless i always feel like an such outreach a fraud, event right? and then I like cram yeah. I'm like yeah, cramming exactly. for it <laughs>
2: it's like it's what people expect of uh, astronomers it and really it's what is. astronomers don't act, ever do <laughs> I know anyway
0: we are disappointing that's true <laughs> Okay, uh, moving on. Another thing that I think is really important to mention, HITEMP, uh, which is a spectroscopic database of line lists, which we all use mm. when we're trying to understand the different elements and different molecules that go into any spectrum that we measure, uh, has released three new line lists for NO, NO2, and N2O. So make sure if you are working with molecular line lists, you go find the new Temp ones for those and download them, add them into your codes. Um, But there's a a number of uh, papers that I want to just briefly mention that I found quite interesting. There were two papers that came out this month which showed variability in the eclipse depths measured for the ultra-hot Jupiter WASP-12b. Now both of these papers reference each other and they point out that it could, what they're seeing, what they're measuring in these differences in the eclipse depth could be the systematics that haven't been accounted for. But with both studies using different instruments, comparing it to space-based measurements, it seems like there might be some inherent variation in this planet. Um, Both papers are really conservative about this. Um, The measurements were all taken on different nights on different telescopes, but they were both done in La Palma. So what I think would be great is if they could take the measurements of WASP-12b at the same time with the two different telescopes from the same place where you've essentially got very similar me- weather and see whether they see that variability again. So I think there's some potential here to do some measurements of weather patterns on the day side of a planet because WASP-12b is a really hot world. We can get really good eclipse measurements of it from the ground. from the ground, And I think that that's, that's going to be one of the first things that first times that something like that can be done. So I would be really excited to see those teams going ahead and and doing simultaneous observations of this this eclipse. But there were three stories which gained big media news this month. Uh, The first one that I was gonna mention, I think Hugh mentioned when the paper went up on archive a while ago, but I'm gonna go quickly through it because it's been quite big in the news in the last couple of weeks. It's the first test discovery of an Earth-sized, that's Earth-radius, exoplanet. Uh, What I like about this is that the discovery paper, the abstract, it reads like it's just a footnote in the study. The paper reports the discovery of two planets around the star HD 21749. One is a sub-Neptune with radius of 2.61 Earth radii and a mass of 22.7 Earth masses. So that's actually more dense than Neptune, which is just 17. Earth masses at four Earth radii, so this is a much more dense world. And then there's this kind of in a burying the lead type of way in a press statement. Um, the abstract has this sentence: "Furthermore, we would report the discovery of HD two one seven four nine C, the first Earth-sized planet from TESS." And that's all it says. <laughs> it's just like wow, you oh, think there'd be a bit more it <laughs> done okay there was a huge amount of fanfare in terms of press and there was a lot of coverage of it and i i was in england at the time it came out and everybody was talking about the fact that tess had found this earth-sized world and then i read a lot of the press statements and they were really very conservative they were very very clear that this was a paper looking at this neptune-sized world which they had confirmed with the mass measurement and a radius measurement and that they also happened around this star to find something that is you know on an eight-day orbit and it is 0.892 Earth radii. And that they are trying to work out how to get mass measurements of it. So I actually, it was quite refreshing, but also I found it quite entertaining how how much they buried the lead there. Um, so, you know, Tess is keeping coming up with lots of new things. Every new thing seems like a, a brand new kind of limit for Tess. So we'll have to keep an eye out for all of the things that are, are going to be discovered there. Do you think maybe they were uh, so
2: conservative about it because they were waiting for a mass, maybe? Or they wanted that independent follow-up? I mean, you really Uh, need a mass
0: measurement for these things uh, for it to be confirmed. So I think that it's right to be conservative, and I I just really like that about it. The team were very, very clear about that. Keeping on the discovery front, uh, we have the discovery of a third planet in the Kepler-47 system. Now this system is interesting as it's a binary star system and it had previously discovered Kepler-47b, which is closest to its star and is the smallest circumbinary planet discovered thus far at 3.1 Earth radii and is on a 49-day orbit. The outermost planet Kepler 47c was also previously known and is a 4.7 times the Earth's radius, which is roughly a Neptune sized world, slightly bigger than Neptune. And it was in last year's
2: Exocup. Sorry to interrupt.
0: And it was part of last year's Exocup. Um, And that's on a 303 day orbit. And then the newest addition to the system which unfortunately ruins the letter sequence as we move out from the star. The newest addition is Kepler-47d, and that sits in between B and C. And what's surprising about this is that it's actually bigger than both of those worlds. It's seven Earth radii, so it's around a Saturn, and it orbits on 187 days. So that means that uh, this system has an inner super-Earth, a middle... Saturn, Jupiter, and an outer Neptune-sized world. Um, So that's something more akin Mm. to what we see in our solar system, where you've got a small rocky world, you've got giant planets, and then you've got small gassy planets. So that's really interesting, but this entire system sits inside the Earth's orbit. So you've got that that transition from the rocky at 47 days to the Jupiter-sized, Saturn-sized world at 187 days, and then you've got this Neptune-sized world at 303 days. So it's an interesting system, and we it's gonna be something that will be used, I think, to try and understand the formation of planets and the sequence of sizes that you might expect from the disk right down to the planetary system. These multi-planet systems, especially around two stars, the stars in the in the middle are a kind of sun-like star and then one that's slightly smaller so it's really interesting to have this kind of dynamical setup this uh, this you know arrangement of worlds around two stars so there's one of the things that that you can get from this is that it shows that there's a likely common formation process for not only single star planetary systems but multi-star planetary systems as well So that in itself, I think, was really interesting. To move on to some characterization side of things, uh, the HR 8799 system, this is the system of four directly imaged planets. So these are planets that have been seen from their light directly and not by inferred by their effect on the star, uh, was examined in a lot more detail this month. Uh, HR 8799e is the closest in planet to its star and it went through a thorough examination using the VLT gravity interferometer. Interferometry is when you take a series of images of one thing from multiple positions on the Earth and use the difference between the precise timings that you get of those signals, the arrival distance, uh, and the timing of that arrival to reconstruct an image. Now, this was actually, this technique was used to reveal the first image of the black hole that we saw this month as well, which I think deserves slightly more than that aside that I'm giving it, but that's all I'm giving it. Um, <laughs> the image that was taken of the HR8799e were able to really increase the precision actually by 10 times of standard imaging techniques. So they got a really, really good image of this planet. And what they found was that the atmosphere is out of equilibrium. So it's not balanced. There's something causing uh, energy input and output from the system that is not just locked within the planet itself. So the atmosphere is out of equilibrium with far more carbon monoxide compared to the expected amount of methane that they would think would be there and they think that this is caused by high vertical winds in the atmosphere itself which is preventing that co2 from reacting and forming that methane and these observations actually also show that the atmosphere is covered in patchy clouds which are measured by the changes in light as the planet itself is rotating so it's not only got this vertical winds which are probably reducing the chance of the atmosphere to form this methane instead of the co but it's also got patchy areas where you can see deeper into the atmosphere um through the clouds so there's variability and there's weather on this planet and that would those clouds be co as well or no, the clouds uh, for this one would likely not be CO. They'd likely be made of salt. So it's a slightly warm world. Um, there'd be probably, I don't know for certain, but I would speculate um, potassium chloride, uh, zinc sulfide, um, that kind of material.
2: Cool. Do you mean to put um, it on the
0: pot? <laughs> it's okay the clouds thing's the thing that i can do Uh, on the spot that's fine (laughs) um but what i what this really shows is the power that interferometry can have on planetary science as well it's not just for those massive things out there looking at you know discs interferometry is used to look at protoplanetary discs a lot it's now been shown that we can use an earth-sized interferometer network to measure and image a black hole uh, but we can also look on this small scale, this planetary scale, trying to understand these directly image wells a bit more. So I'm, I'm really hoping to see more from the gravity instrument at the VLT in the future. And then finally, uh, hot off the press as we're recording, today uh, was uh, a paper went up on Archive, which is a reanalysis of the Kepler 1625b system. And if you remember from the ExoCup, Uh, that is a the system with a potential exomoon now that uh, paper that was released by uh, teaching and kipping last year looking at that exomoon evidence came under a lot of scrutiny and a lot of people have been trying to reanalyze that data and the latest one uh, latest paper looking at that potential exomoon is is out on the archive. And Hugh, you, you read that one, didn't you? Would you uh, mind commenting yeah. a little bit more on that for us?
1: Well, I mean, the the headline news is that they don't find an exomoon, which, um, I mean, if you remember back to, to when we talked about the exomoon news a few months ago, we were quite sceptical, right? I mean, me, me especially, I think the the idea that there's a neptune twenty Earth mass moon around the super jupiter seems pretty unlikely and also the data we were quite uh, skeptical as to whether that dip was real and then indeed it seems like this new um, analysis using the same reduction pipeline that's been used for many other papers so because laura kreidberg has has, has used the same pipeline on the same instrument i think that gives it a little bit of of credence you know a little bit more belief that maybe this is the better of the two reductions um, obviously i don't know much about how these reductions work i've never used the data so i can't really say that with confidence but but um, at the least it says that there is some problems when it comes to trying to find these tiny little dips in uh, any data set but especially hubble data set so um, even if it hasn't killed the candidates it certainly poured more cold water on the idea that it could be a a moon. So we'll see, we'll see what happens because I'm sure they'll get another few Hubble orbits to observe another transit. And we'll see if if the next transit detects the same dip. But I would imagine um, that that might be the last we've seen of Kepler 1625 bi, as it was known.
0: Well, uh, um, what I saw on Twitter is that Alex Ticci, the lead author of that first study, is working on a follow-up paper for that. So I don't think this is the last we've heard of that system itself. Uh, Maybe we can try and understand a little bit more about it. So I am sure we'll hear from it again. But that is it from my coverage of the Exoplanet news this month. Uh, And I look forward to hearing what comes up in the next month. So keep writing, everybody.
1: Well, thanks for sticking with us. Now it's time to adopt planets this month, of course. Our guest is going to be choosing which planet to put into our our ranks of the Hall of Fame exoplanets. So which one have you gone for, Oh,
3: So I've gone for one that is very special to my heart because I spent like half my PhD (laughs) worrying about it. It's Coro 7b. So, Coro 7 yeah. b is... I, I guessed
1: you'd go for this one, actually. I had my no yeah, idea. I,
3: <laughs> I feel like people would be disappointed if I didn't pick this one.
1: <laughs> oh, really?
3: Uh, it's basically the first uh, rocky exoplanet that was ever found. Uh, so, it was found by the KORO uh, Photometric Space Mission, and then it was 1.6 Earth radii in 2009. So, the smallest one so far. And then what happened is that everybody was like, "Okay, great. We're going to go measure the mass. We're going to take radial velocity observations. And we got, they got uh, four months of uh, HARPS data, which at the time was a lot of data. And there were several teams. And they all published their different papers. There are like six or maybe even eight papers about the mass of Coro 7b. And everybody disagrees. (laughs) And that's because the star is very active. And that was really, uh, it seems to me that was a wake-up call about, you know, okay, we're in this new era of finding super-Earth-sized planets, and we're really going to have to tackle the stellar activity because we cannot assume any longer that the host stars are homogeneous light bulbs. And so for me, that was a turning point, I think.
2: So Corot seven B had a had a sibling at one point, didn't it?
3: <laughs> well, I wasn't sure whether to mention that or not. Yeah. So it has. So Corot seven C is a, a small Neptune, um, and that one tran- uh, it doesn't transit, but it's big enough that you can definitely. Uh, well, actually, no. It's 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 pretty big, and it's pretty it's very coherent, and we have a lot of data. But then again. I think applying my, my logic of you know we need an independent detection, I think we would want to confirm that one. So maybe it's still at the planet candidate level, uh, but it has another si- well, <laughs> zombie sibling, uh, Coro 7d, which at the time, so when they measured the mass of Coro 7b, they found yeah they found Coro 7c, uh, which was fairly undis- undisputed. And then CHORO7D was a signal at about nine days orbital period. And it looked pretty coherent. You could see the peak in the periodogram. But then there were several studies that were like, no, yes, no. <laughs> and so in my PhD, uh, we put a nail in the coffin of CHORO7D and we said, no, it's, it's not coherent over the, the space of the observations. Uh, if it were a planet, we would have expected a signal that was like that little bit stronger and the thing is that the rotation period of coral seven is 23 days and so eight to nine days is basically where the, the first harmonic well where it's a third of the rotation period mm. so, so you're,
1: you're a bonafide planet killer
3: yep <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the club <laughs> <laughs> a lot more fun than finding them <laughs> <laughs>
1: A nice thing about Coro 7, at least a nice thing about publicizing it is is because a lot of Americans seem to forget it exists because uh, Kepler-10b was was for a long time assumed to be the first rocky planet. But actually, Coro 7b was was published, I don't know, what, four years before, two years before or something like this.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for raising that because I I also wanted to mention that uh, Coro 7 came before (laughs) Kepler-10.
0: Nice.
2: (laughs) Kepler-10, of course, winning uh, the first Cup uh primarily on that on that basis right on the fact that it was the yeah. first uh, yeah, and we perpetuated
0: that myth a little bit too much didn't we <laughs> that's our that's our bad on that we're side. making up for it now yeah <laughs> chorus is an excellent choice to add to the family so thank yeah. you for including that for us
3: yeah thanks, right well i'm glad it's part of the family
0: Thank you so much for joining us for another excellent installment of Exocast. And thank you to our special guest, Dr. Raphael Hayward. We will return next month for more exciting Exoplanet news and views. And I will be joined by special guest, Dr. Thomas Howarth. We will be talking about planet formation scenarios. So until then, you can check out all of our previous shows on our website exocast.org and on iTunes and other popular podcast networks. You can follow us on Twitter at exo underscore cast and like us on Facebook. But until next time, goodbye from us.
2: Bye bye. Goodbye.
1: goodbye. <laughs> Bye, <laughs> Raffi's doing it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Spooky. X-A-Cast.
1: X-A-Cast.
0: Um, Hugh, stop it. You were dancing around my script.
2: I'm going to try that statement again because I just got so excited. I've, I lost the ability to make sentences. <sighs>